Hey everyone, D3 here. Now, this conversation was recorded in April, uh, shortly before the passing of Al Schmidt. So, because of Pete's relationship with Al and because of how much Al is mentioned in this one, we're going to dedicate this one to Al. So, Mr. Al Schmidt, this one's for you. We love you. Roll the intro. How you doing, everyone? Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Ready to Record from Blue Girl Studios. My name is Daniel, the D3 Cohen. I'm your host, and I am speaking to you from Blue Girl Productions' worldwide headquarters and studios here in my garage. I'm a 19-year-old aspiring musician, engineer, and producer, and like many of you, I make music out of my own home studio. You know, some of today's biggest hit makers work from home studios, so maybe we can help one of you accomplish your big dreams. In our last episode, I had the extreme pleasure of interviewing Mr. Steve Stevens. It was a whole lot of fun, and I totally recommend you check that one out. You can find that episode and lots of other great music podcasts at our network site, pantheonpodcasts.com. You can also find it and other episodes of Ready to Record on our site, bluegirlproductions.net, or anywhere you get your podcasts. This one... The man needs no introduction. Mastering and recording engineer extraordinaire, Mr. Pete Dell, is on the show today. If you're a little younger like me, you probably know the name Pete Dell as a mastering engineer, and a very good one at that. For the last 18 years, Pete has been everywhere in the mastering world. Right now, working with Shelly Yakis as the chief mastering engineer at Aftermaster Labs. But what Pete has done for longer is be a recording engineer, and a really good one. Pete's done everything from Miles Davis to Dwight Yoakam to Frank Sinatra and the Stray Cats, and so many more. And today, we got into a bit of everything. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Mr. Pete Dell. Mr. Pete Dell, welcome to the podcast. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, we're thrilled to have you. So, naturally, as I as I do with all my guests, I have to ask: audio production, recording, mixing, mastering—this this thing we call the engineering world—is a crazy business. Why get into it? Where where did you start? Uh, masochism struck early in my family. <laughs> uh, actually, you know, uh, I came from a fairly musical family, and. Uh, I actually had a lot of great musical moments as a preteen, and uh, my uh, my brother, my eldest brother, was a uh, like a hi-fi enthusiast. Now this is back in the fifties, <clears throat> uh, and I would help him build, you know, stereo amps and whatnot. And uh, by the time I started playing guitar in bars at thirteen, because I was already six one. It could pass for, you know, a legitimate um, age enough person. Uh, I would uh, need to repair my guitar amps or bass amps is really what I fell into pretty quickly because, as my other brother pointed out, well, you could sit home and and jerk off for quite a number of years. But if you played bass, you could be working all the time, which sounded like a good idea. So that's what I did. And, uh, you know, it was kind of at that point in the musical time of our uh, culture and our country and all that, back in the sixties, there was so much great music. And I grew up in Rochester, New York, where there was not only a, a, a pretty healthy R and B and soul kind of thing, as well as plenty of rock, but it was my brother who came back from the air force and turned me on to uh, 
Jimi Hendrix and stuff. I mean, like the, the first Jimi Hendrix record, uh, I just, you know, wore out. And uh, I, get, I got to see Jimi Hendrix twice. I got to see him the week that Axis Bold as Love came out, which was the second record. And I got to see him play at the Fillmore East for New Year's Eve with a band of gypsies. So I, I, got, I got that going for me. Well, when I was in college, although I started off uh, as a pre-med major, thinking that I would actually make something out of myself other than a knucklehead who, <laughs> who only could get off on music, uh, <laughs> I, had, uh, I, I had a band and we opened up for, you know, uh, big bands that would go through the college, like uh, uh, the, we opened for the Moody Blues, John Mayall, Canned Heat. Uh, you know, some of the bigger things that would wander through our, this is Albany, New York, where I went to college. Sure. And, uh, but I, one of the, the, the drummers, in, the drummer in my band, he was in the electronic music program. And one day I was in the music building with him and this, this door opened and I saw all these multi-track Scully tape machines and stuff. It's like, excuse me, what do I have to do to get in that room? And it was the electronic music program. And as I say, I'd already got the bug about electronics. And also at that point in time, I had figured out that you didn't necessarily have to have the the most killer band or even maybe the most killer song. But if you could come up with a, a, a killer and interesting ground shattering kind of sound, you might be onto something. You might have a hit record on your hand just because you had been able to manipulate the medium in a clever unique way right so i was already kind of predisposed shall we say to uh be interested in the technology so i came at it from a musical you know need uh you know repairing stuff so i could keep playing and all that but it was uh uh you know it was kind of a hand in glove thing it was really kind of a natural fit and when i was in college like i say uh the electronic music program there um, this is 1969. <clears throat> um, we had the biggest, the largest Moog facility in, in the country. And it was the only place uh, in the country you could get a degree in uh, electronic music uh, on the undergraduate level. Um, and, uh, you know, at that point, I got to visit Bob Moog in Trumansburg, New York, a number of times. John Cage was a guy who would come to our college and teach every once in a while. So it was really kind of a, a fertile time for all kinds of music for me back then. Very fortunate. Understandably, the the time that having the Moog sound coming out and all of the great music that, you know, I, I know I reference, certainly everybody else interested in recording and audio production does, and you're living it. Right. Now, our, our version of electronic music and the Moog synthesizer had no keyboards attached. We weren't trying to do vertical harmony and, you know, all that kind of Western music because we already had orchestras to do that. We were into making more, I guess, for lack of a, a better term, uh, more like sound design or soundscapes, you know, stuff mm. that was more more pure. And because you're not dealing with, you know, the assigned attack, decay, timbre kind of things that you get when you pick up a traditional instrument. There was a lot of naive music that came up, but there was some really great stuff too. Um, I am, as a, not too big of an aside, I, I do a, a weekly industry lunch thing and have for a number of years, and we're sort of gone, chased into the virtual world because of the pandemic. But it's called the LA Audio Lunch Bunch. Right. So every week we get a whole bunch of people together and heretofore it was always in person every Wednesday at this nice place out in Burbank. And one of the regulars is a guy named Bob Margoliff. Now, Bob Margoliff, you may or may not know as the producer of uh, the early big Stevie Wonder hits, you know. Right. And he programmed all of Stevie's synths. Right. He had a, a, a an organization or a, a, a group with the synthesizer and it was called Tonto, which stood for the original new Tombrel Orchestra, Tonto, right? 
So hmm. we have the um, we have the like I was saying, they have the lunch bunch thing as a Zoom thing every week. We'll have it again tomorrow. I'll send you the invite. You should come. Well, um, but uh, Bob Margaleff was on talking about his partner, uh, Malcolm Sissel, who just passed away, um, which was sad because he was a really amazing and wonderful man, really sweet guy and a real trailblazer. So, but uh, Bob Margaleff is an amazingly, I mean, I won't disclose his age, but let's put it this this way: he's 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 so young, thinking and still swinging for the fences. More modern, crazy thinker at his advanced age that uh, it's so inspiring. There's another fellow in our crew who is even older, <laughs> and that's Al Schmidt. I don't know if you know that name, or your readers or listeners will know that name, but he's. For for those who don't know at the name Al Schmidt, you should know the name Al Schmidt because in the in the in the words of of some dear friends of mine in the local uh, music scene here in San Francisco, he is God. Not like the audio production little G gods. No, he is of the audio production world, big G God. <laughs> yeah, he's that. In fact, if you were to list, it's probably quicker to list the twelve or thirteen artists he hasn't worked with yet. Right. Then then to list his his credits is just ridiculous. But again, those two guys are so inspiring, not just because of the 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 log of the backlog of their work, but but they're still swinging for the fences. You know, I won't I won't disclose numbers, but you could look it up. They're they're very impressive. So if you ever think of, uh, you know, well, I've done enough. I think I'll just go, uh, you know, sit on the beach for a while. Look at these guys. They're just unbelievable. Completely. They're I mean, their careers are are utterly ridiculous. They've they've done I mean, I, I think in the case of both of those guys, it's safe to say they've done it all and they're not going to stop until they've done more than everything possible. <laughs> yeah. Too true. Too true. Now well, the, go ahead. Continuing on the topic of of synthesis, uh, since you were uh, in this electronic music production uh, major, I, I am curious. Um, what is continuing on this aside? What is your uh, relationship with uh, the music and maybe the person Wendy Carlos? You know, I I met Walter. Uh, I never met Wendy, but uh, musically, oh my God, uh, when I met Walter, he was just, you know, sort of reeling from the unexpected success of the switched on Bach thing. But uh, Wendy, I mean, just from the little bit I've read of interviews with her, and I do know a couple of people who know her fairly well, is that she was so focused on... Uh, on the target that she aimed herself at and, you know, with movies and uh, commercials, I guess, and all sorts of, uh, you know, really applied things. She's quite, quite brilliant, I think. I, I agree. I, I think, you know, perhaps some people may think of this as a stretch, but I, I don't know. I've, I've always been a fan of, uh, of the Moog sound and, you know, Emerson, Lake and Palmer and all that. And I, I think it's pretty safe to say that without Wendy, or at least without Walter at the time, um, there would probably be no ELP or anything similar. And I, I would even venture to say that there's a good chance that the eighties wouldn't have looked the way they did without her contributions. Uh, no argument there. No, not at all. So from your time in electronic music production, uh, the, in the earliest forms, where do you go to find yourself in studios as a recording engineer? Well, as I, as I intimated, my, my draw was the technology more than the music. And uh, you got to understand, too, <laughs> at that point in time, uh, even though we had uh, the Moog synthesizers, 
a lot of electronic music was being done, if you'll pardon the expression, on freaking punch cards. You know, <laughs> right. and you'd send your punch cards down to Columbia, Princeton, and a week later, you'd get a tape of what your music sounded like. Surprise! <laughs> uh, not exactly, you know, like you hit a button and the sound comes out, like with, uh, you know, the Minimoog or, or any other uh, keyboard-based synthesizer, where it's immediate. So it, sure. it was a, a, a whole different ball game, and it, it what I was faced with was like if I wanted to continue any interest in electronic music at that, you know, incarnation of it, meant you'd have to go and attach yourself to another um, academic place, you know, a university or something. Eh, that wasn't it. so. I reverted back to pop. I mean, rock and you know, soul and all those things. I really had an affinity for. Um, and when I got my degree in electronic music, it's like, okay, now. <laughs> so I fooled around with a couple of things. And then I'd been out of college for about a year and a half when I actually, while in college, I should back up and say that I met this fellow to whom I will be forever grateful. His name is Barry Ober. And although he lives in North Carolina, no, Florida, I think these days. He's he's still another guy who's got all this energy and is still swinging for the fences. But he came to my college to interview my uh, my mentor, my composition teacher, Mr. Joel Chadby, still a brilliant composer and still active in that style of music. Um, he wanted to, to speak to him, and I said, no, no, no. You want to speak to me once I figured out what this guy was all about, because he was affiliated with this recording studio in Boston uh, that was doing all this crazy stuff. I mean, with you know, I won't I won't go into too much detail because it was really kind of for the time really off the wall. Some of it was stuff that you know it, it sounds pretty garden variety now, but you know, fifty years ago, however many years ago that was. Um, it was pretty revolutionary. So I was really interested in what this guy was up to. And uh, a, a year and change after I got out of college, I actually uh, moved to Boston and ended up working at that same aforementioned studio. And, and it was great. It, it, in fact, that studio was in a little, a uh, very Latino in, uh, enclave called, uh, Jamaica Plain which sounds more Caribbean, but it's really it was really more Cuban and mostly Cuban and Puerto Rican neighborhood. So there was a lot of great charanga bands to record and stuff. Um, but in addition to working at that studio, uh, I played music in the clubs at night and stuff. Uh, got to do a lot of stuff there when I lived in Boston. I got to play with the, the Boston Pops. <laughs> Uh, I got to play with the ice capades. <laughs> I got to play in the strip clubs. Boy, that was an education. Um, <laughs> but all sorts of great musical opportunities. And, uh, you know, like I, I, I probably said before, if I was on a terrible date, you know, and at night, I'd say, well, you know, I'm really a recording engineer by day. And if I was on a terrible recording, I'd say, well, you know, I'm really a bass player working my way through all the hits and everything at night. So you always had a had a an excuse for you know being somewhere you didn't didn't really feel like you wanted to be, <laughs> uh, but it was a great time and a, and a great uh, furtive place. All this great music was going on, and um, you know I, I can tell you one quick story how we I went to a club. You know there were a lot of great jazz there in Boston, and uh, you know getting a band that was. Uh, Pat Metheny and Jaco Pistorius and uh, Bobby Moses and getting those guys to come back to our studio and record them all all night, you know, and stuff like that. Ah, some incredible musical moments back then. You know, people were very much freer. Uh, oh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, but, you know, for recording, unfortunately, the bigger projects, you know, were... Boston is not that far away from New York City, so a lot of the bigger projects would go down there. Although uh, 
Um, I, I got to master Joe Perry's, I think his last record, which is already over a year ago now. And I reminded him that when I was at this place, Dimension Sound in Boston back then, that I we got to record uh, at an early version of Aerosmith. Uh, you know, they they weren't the huge things that they became, but it was all the same guys. The same guys have been there for 40 friggin' years. Right. Well, you know, that's that's kind of the beauty of, of I, I suppose that's kind of the beauty of the Northeast uh, of the United States at the time. You, you got so much different stuff in front of you. Yeah. And I don't know if you did you grow up in California? I know you're living up in North Cal now. Uh, born and raised in San Francisco. Yeah. I father from Manhattan went to school at, at Columbia. So I, I have a lot of New York influence, but born and raised in California. Yeah. Well, what I was uh, what I was gonna say as a point of reference is like you know I grew up in Rochester, New York, where the joke is there are only three seasons, and they are June, July, and winter. Winter, right? Right. So it was cold so much of the fucking time that you stayed in house and and practiced. A lot of great players came from colder environments, which is not to say that that's the only reason, but I'm not sure from for. Uh, point of comparison how i would have fared if i grew up out here in la you know i uh, it's just hey surfs up hey it's just too too nice to stay in the house and record or practice rather you know a different uh different environment well i have to admit to you just as a, a bit of an aside uh on a more personal note of of myself uh, you know growing up as a as an only child and and homeschooled uh oh wow well, both parents were uh, were in the music industry. They had to get to gigs, so they couldn't really leave me at school. Um, but uh, similar experience. You're you're kind of cooped up in the house all day. No friends. No no nothing to do. So, what do you do? You practice playing music. Amen. Good on you. I am curious because you've you already we have talked about uh, a very wide range of music. Um, in your career and I know you had two releases in 1986 one being a Miles Davis album and the other being Stray Cats uh, <laughs> I, I have asked this before of several of my guests and I can think of uh, Christina Picari in particular uh, I asked this who has a similar uh, story to you in that regard of multiple genres how What's your philosophy between jumping from one session to another? Do you find yourself having to switch hats or is it all the same? You're, you're recording a band, you're, re you're recording a piece of music, it's, you're engineering, it doesn't matter. Well, on one level, on its most basic level, it's all music, right? It's supposed to touch people. And, you know, they're really, it's really not that, that, wildly different i mean the specifics are different but and the specific people are, are different certainly right. but you know what it is what you're trying to do with it uh if you will look at recorded musical material as putty right and you're trying to mold it into something that is going to really turn your audience on then you know it's really not all that wildly different uh both Christina and I both share having been staff engineers at Capitol Records Studios for many years. Well, she, she's still there. But I was there for 15, 16 years. Long time. And I still refer to it as my home. You know, it definitely was a spectacular place to sort of cut your teeth. Um, but yeah, it was so much fun. And to get a variety like that, you know. Um, you'd be doing a, a TV date in the morning and then, you know, um, Steve Miller band record in the evening, or, you know, it could be anything, you know, and that was so much fun. Um, uh, and just to jump ahead, what I do now as a mastering engineer, uh, you don't get, you don't get pigeonholed, uh, like if I, I bet if I was doing this in the era when, vinyl records were the one and only delivery medium um cutting vinyl 
for different genres of music really does require much more of a specialty than if your delivery medium is just digital. Sure. Um, different problems because of bass management and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, but uh, the, I was going to say the comparable great thing about being a mastering engineer too is that you don't get pigeonholed. I get to do a huge variety of stuff and that makes it fun going to work every day. Um, but to, back to your question about, is it like schizophrenia to, to do that? No, it, it, it helps bring out one's basic musicality. I think, you know, you get to the, what really makes this, you're capturing a performance, right? Um, when I got to work with Miles Davis, I mean, that guy was, <laughs> you know, how shall we say different? <laughs> you, you know, you'd be listening to a, a, a section of the, of a track together and you hear the changes as C minor seven, A flat diminished, blah, blah, blah. He hears it as J demolished, you know, F, uh, you know, you know, he hears it in a completely other way. And obviously a way more interesting, fascinating way. Uh, you know, it's amazing to, to see how different people think and exciting. Well, I mean, I, there are a few stories that always uh, come out to me when it, comes to miles davis obviously like the 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 famous herbie story of uh they were playing in a club one night and he took a solo and it got very mediocre response from the crowd and the next <laughs> night miles told them don't play the bottom notes but what uh what herbie heard was don't play the butter notes um and uh <laughs> and, and and herbie came out uh herbie came to him after the show because he had gotten the most applause uh, he had ever gotten in, uh, up until that point. He said, the hell was that? And, he, and Herbie told Miles, he told me, don't play the butter notes. He said, I said, don't play the bottom notes, but whatever the hell you did, keep doing it. <laughs> That's great. Another really funny story. My, both my parents worked for Bill Graham. Oh, wow. And, uh, and there was a time that, uh, that Bill loved uh, talking about. They were at the Greek theater and, uh, Miles was uh, Miles was playing, and he comes into the back and he sees Bill, and you know these guys have a mutual respect for each other because you know New York old school, both Bill being a big fan of jazz and and Latin music, and you know Miles being kind of you know Miles, and uh, he went up to Bill and said, "Hey Graham, give me a hand." And uh, he he uh, gave Miles his hand, and Miles put his hand up into uh, you know facing Miles like uh, like Bill was telling him to stop, and he punched his hand, <laughs> <laughs> smiled and and sort of chuckled under his breath and, and walked away. Um, my my, I don't know why my father loves telling that story. <laughs> After he heard it from Bill, he's he's been telling that story for thirty years, and just loves telling that one. Just as you know, especially because I'm in a jazz band, I'm sure, uh, and and how much everybody just worships Miles Davis. Tells him how crazy he is. Oh man, he was the he was crazy, but but crazy funny and also crazy like a fox, really. Like <laughs> he was you probably have heard that he's renowned for not wanting to like fix a take, you know, I'll give you another take, but I ain't fixing anything, you know, because every, everything is, you know, a piece unto itself or it's, you know, it's, it's right. a performance. Right. So, right. So we, I forget what song it was on the record, but we, you know, he, he had played this, played this ridiculous, long, gorgeous thing. And then, you know, he, as you might imagine, a lot of these people who are super creative, they play their best stuff when they don't really know, you know, they're not overly familiar with it. They're, mm -hmm. they're just reacting. Right. So he played this thing. He wasn't sure where, you know, how, how far it goes. And so he ended up diminishing it, you know, like 
coming down dynamically and ending the thing, like, I don't know, 32 bars from the end, you know, and it was like Tommy Lapuma, who was the producer of, of this great, great record, said to me, oh, man, we got to get him to fix this. So we got on the talk back, Miles, can, can we just like roll back a little bit and, you know, just have you finish it out? That was just incredible. And, you know, as I say, Miles was notorious for not wanting to fix anything, but he acquiesced. He said, okay, yeah, I'll fix this. So I roll back 16 bars, show him exactly where I'm going to drop in, roll back, you know, play up to the spot, I go into record. And like I say, where we had stopped, it had diminu diminished diminuendo down to something very soft, right? But mm -hmm. when I dropped in, after showing him where we were going to go, he was at the fucking moon dynamically. It was like triple forte and, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, the tape ends eight bars or 16 bars later and he leans down to the microphone and goes, yeah, I fixed it. I fixed your Italian ass <laughs> to La Puma, you know? Okay. Yeah, sure. I'll fix it for you. Go ahead. My other favorite memory from that time uh, of that record was uh, we were going to do percussion overdubs on, you know, on several tracks. So you hire, we, we wanted to hire Polino da Costa. I don't know if you know that name, but Polino, uh, among other things. Okay. Think of Michael Jackson's Billie Jean. Right. Right. You know, the kabasa. that's the groove. Uh, mm -hmm. and I know from Bruce Wadeen that how they got that sound on the kibasa is they recorded it at half speed so that when you played it back, it, the harmonics would be up an octave and make it have this shimmer, right? So you can imagine how tough it is to make a groove when it's, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. that's tougher, way tougher. So that's the artistry of this cat. So what, that was the guy we wanted, the Puma and myself and Marcus Miller, who was the other producer, real real producer of the record. Uh, we were all voting for La Puma. But Miles, God love him, was loyal, and he was going to have the guy who was the percussionist in his live band. And I won't mention his name, but he is also a spectacularly talented guy, great musician, uh, just wasn't Paulinho, right? So he shows up for the date and he brings in like 20 road cases. It's like Barnum and Bailey time here, you know, with the, the, <laughs> the amount of road cases he broke, you know, and Oof. we're thinking we're only going to, you know, need a cowbell, a tambourine, a clave, you know, what, whatever. Not all this stuff. So he, he sees, Miles sees all this stuff come and he sees the player set up all these wild instruments. And, you know, Miles is seeing, okay, I've been set up here. Okay, you're not going to mess with me, right? So we cue up the first song and Miles gets on the talk back and, and says to the player, he goes, man, whenever you hear something to play, don't play. And he lets go of the talk back. Okay, that's clear enough, right? So I cue it up. I go in to record. The guy's standing out there bopping away. And he, oh, here's something. Picks up the tambourine. Remembers what Miles says. Puts down the tambourine. Another eight, <laughs> another eight bars later. Oh, here's something else. He grabs a cowbell. Puts down the cowbell. You know, we're all we're all dying on the fucking floor in the control room. Lapuma, Miles, myself. Oh, my God. It was just, you know, because... Miles, Miles is not going to be, you know, be eating crow for his choice of guy. This is his way of, <laughs> this is his way of dealing with the situation. It was spectacularly funny. No kidding. Wow. <laughs> the best part of that whole record, though, for me, was getting to go out to dinner. But it was just La Puma and Miles and myself did that a, a couple, three times. And you can imagine the stories. Oh my God, that was that was really an education. And just you know, I'm so, I was so blessed. <laughs> you know, that's that's uh, it's probably 
it, it, it well definitely pales in comparison to uh to uh, uh having dinner with uh with miles but uh i i can i can definitely understand the the sentiment i know uh there was a night after a gig and i was uh standing out on a buddy of mine's balcony with the lead singer of the spin doctors and the the aforementioned keyboardist of spinal tap viv savage and we're out there smoking a joint uh and uh and hearing these two you know have have stories from the road was was absolutely hilarious the best the best part for me was watching the face of chris Barron as as uh the keyboardist of spinal tap the 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 original keyboardist of spinal tap if savage is explaining um all of the crazy times of being in spinal tap all that um so well uh i cannot uh well i cannot share in a experience as as great as having dinner with miles davis i can understand the uh the uh the sentiment and the idea of of having of having a moment like that oh yes i got to work on uh a couple of frank sinatra records but they were they were later on but you can imagine some of the stories that you heard were were pretty out there but uh they were they were later in his life i mean i think he it was 77 when we did the uh the two um sinatra's duets records this is in the early 90s i think uh, right but it it was fun i i got a quick quick story about that though it was like the 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 first night of the first album um we had set up a uh, like a booth, a hut, you know, with glass all around, but enclosed top, so we could mix vocal takes with with different band takes if need be, you know, like in case we got a a great performance from the band, but you know maybe he flubbed a line or did a different version on another take that we wanted to use that was preferred, <clears throat> we could mix and match, right? So right. So the first night. Uh, we had to scratch out all the mics and, you know, we got all the, you know, did all the nuts and bolts stuff. The band comes in and it was Pat Williams arrangements and, uh, um, he was conducting and the band was, you know, who was who were the, the greatest, uh, big band players and, you know, all the greatest studio players and everything. And, uh, <clears throat> so we had rehearsed with the band for a couple hours going over the charts before Sinatra was supposed to show up at seven. I think maybe we had the band from, you know, five to seven, just as rehearsal or, you know, something like that. And then he comes down the hall and walks in and Phil Ramone is producing. And Phil goes out to greet him and, you know, <clears throat> he sees the music and and Frank's line is like, well, what am I doing here? I've, I've recorded all these before. This, this, is, this is a waste of my fucking time. And everybody's going, uh, excuse me? Because <laughs> this was to be his return, his triumphant return to Capital EMI. Because, you know, he started his career on Capital. And then for a couple of decades, he was over on Warner Brothers and they created reprise records for him, which right. is a Warner's spinoff. So this was the triumphant return. And, you know, the idea was that they were going to do all these duets with you know, younger stars who are currently selling records. That was the, that was the the plan, right? Uh, so, anyway, he he comes down and says, "You know, this is a waste of my time," and then leaves. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. So we got the band there. We're not sending them home. So we record tracks. You know, great, great arrangements, great playing. You know, Al Schmidt engineering. You know, what's not to love? So the next afternoon, we got Frank to come down and, uh, <laughs> you know, so we get him out in the hut and we, okay, was, uh, are we going to use any of these, you know, $20,000 condenser mics, you know, the, 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 the 251, the 47, the C12, you know, all the, usual right. sus all the suspects. Um, and if, and uh, are we going to use the, uh, the single-sided phones or the double-sided phones, and it's going to be the printed, 
page or is it going to be the teleprompter? Is it, you know, if it's the teleprompter, is it white on black or black on white? You know, we turn over all these fucking rocks, um, get him to sing on a couple of the chosen takes from the night before, and it's really B-flat, really uninspiring. He's, he's, he's sending the message, look, I don't want to do this, okay? You read me? <laughs> so, so okay, so a couple hours later, after we've figured out whether it's going to be the, the single-sided or the double-sided or you know, which microphone it's going to be and you know, all those variables, the band comes in, and now Frank goes, well, I can't be in here. I got to be out there with the guys. So what we ended up using is a handheld SM87 Shure condenser mic with wedges on the floor next to Bill, his piano player. That's the fucking record. And that is the most beautiful thing ever. You know, it. I, I'm glad you brought up Sinatra because one of the one of the. Uh, and I wish I could find the actual quote somewhere so I could print it out and, and frame it on a wall in my studio. But there was a, uh, there was a story that I had heard about him doing some takes probably in the seventies, uh, where he went in and, you know, the band had already tracked and he dubbed the whole thing and, and did this vocal dubbing session. And, uh, and he flubbed up a couple of words, but he kind of one-taked the whole project. And, and the engineer and the producer were, were like, this sounds fantastic. Hey, could you go back and just, you know, dub a couple of these, these words that you made a mistake on? And as far as the story goes that I heard, he looked at them with a straight face, said overdubs are for pussies, and walked out of the studio. Yeah, right. I can believe that. First, first time uh, I worked with Harry Connick, Harry Connick Jr. Uh, it was on the When Harry Met Sally movie, which is obviously quite a, many moons ago. Mm. And, and he was in that same camp in that, you know, I gave you one take that that should be good enough. No, <laughs> you know, it's like. No. <laughs> I'm one and done. That that that's me. That's it. Thank you very next. Uh, sure. But at, just to give a little bit more background on on Harry, though, that guy is a freaking genius. I remember we, we did. Maybe it was a Christmas record. I don't know. We did another. I had to. I had the pleasure of working on four or five or six records with Harry, and uh, on one of these records, um, he did all these vocal stacks. Okay. So there's like four parts and, you know, doubles of each. Uh, and, you, you know, so it might be left and right doubled of each of the four parts. So that's, that's what, that's four times, that's 16 parts and the lead vocal, right? So his trick was, I don't want to hear anything in the phones except the one I'm doing now. I don't want you to hear any of the ones I'm doing, I've done, except the one I'm doing now, right? So he does this, he stacks them all up, comes in, you hear him back, absolutely phase lock, the, the, the attack, the, the ending, the intonation, everything was, it was just uncanny. The guy is such a friggin' genius to, you know, to be able to do these nuanced things. It's not just real, but to remember exactly how you, where you did the vibrato and where you did the this, and where you, uh, uncanny. The guy's a freaking genius. But that, but that was the game, right? You, I'm going to do it. You don't get to hear it. I don't get to hear it till it's all done. You know, I, I got to admit, I kind of find that smart. I, I've, I've seen, I, I don't do a lot of vocal tracking sessions. I'm, I, my, my band is for the most part instrumental, but we do a lot of horns. I'm, I'm in a jazz band with a, anywhere from a three to five piece horn section. Call me tomorrow. You'll probably have five pieces. Call me Wednesday. Call me next Wednesday. Uh, my half my band might tell me to go fuck myself, and I might be down to one horn. Anyhow, <laughs> one of the things that ends up happening a lot because I'm a crazy man when it comes to arrangements is we'll stack a ton of horns, and one of the things that will end up happening, especially with my trombone player, is 
he will do a take with the with the first one and he'll do it over and over but if as soon as we mute the take because he knows where he's supposed to be playing say we're doing an octave double or something if we do an octave double and he mute and i mute the uh the original uh take he does it perfectly in time on intonation like everything's correct but as soon as he hears the other stuff he gets tripped up and it's interesting you know and it's this it's the same for it's not every horn player and it's not every session you know sometimes they they need the the original takes but sometimes the original takes will trip people up i've noticed not sure if that's if that's a something that harry fears or or has experienced or if he's just a guy who's like you know what fuck it i'm going to make these guys do it my way but uh it's certainly think, interesting. Yeah, my my bet is it it's more like that. It's more choice B there. Right. Right. Now, as far as things like I, I, I am curious because I'm a, a multi instrumentalist and a and a drummer. I, I want to hear your philosophy on drum recording in particular, because I feel like in in the grand scheme of music, a, a lot of things as far as microphones and uh, choice and placement is very similar be you doing a rock session a funk session or a jazz session a guitar cabinet is a guitar cabinet an acoustic is an acoustic a vocal is a vocal but drums somehow will generally have different miking techniques for different styles of music certainly jazz uses fewer mics than a rock session where a lot, where at least in my experience, they're they're more close mic'd. Um, what's your philosophy on on miking per different styles of music, like doing drums with all close mics in rock and doing a pair of overheads and a kick mic for a jazz session? I I, I think drums. As you were building up to the question, my mind went to piano recording. How. There's so many different ways to mic the piano and, you know, depending on what it's going to live with, let's say if it's going to cut through a wall of guitars or, or if it's going to be more, you know, the, the main feature and whether it, you're supposed to feel like, you know, you're looking down right above the hammers or if you're a couple feet outside the piano, there's a million ways to capture the piano totally uh, determined by what the music uh, that is going to come from that instrument. Sure. But a uh, uh, set of drums, you know, for myself, I think you always have the close mics for, for you may not ever even turn them on, but mm. in the, in the mix, but you better have them. It's the same thing. Like when you record an orchestra, you know, you know what a decatry is? Vaguely. Well, it's it's the three mics, left, center, right, that are up right above the conductor's sure. head. Sure. You know, like 15 feet above his head, practically. And uh, the idea is that they are capturing the balance that he is eking out from the orchestra. Right? If you only had those, you'd get the performance that, that he wants. Right? Um, but for articulation and for you know, s spatial or, or um, identification, uh, we always have the spot mics, but you may or may not ever turn them on. I mean, right. you'll record them, but they may not actually see the light of day in the mix. Um, so I was going to say with the, with a set of drums, like I had the good fortune on um, doing one of uh, Marcus Miller's record where the band was Wayne Shorter, Tony Williams, uh, Marcus, uh, Lala Hathaway singing and uh, um, Joe Sample on piano. Great lineup. Yeah, a lot of lamos, right? <laughs> but to, to but to record Tony, you know, I I had the usual close mics, and I had some. Probably the overheads might have been you know like a foot higher than 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 normal, or but I don't remember even doing that because. And in, in, in a situation like that, you know, a lot of this stuff may or may not be all done live in the room. So there will be a, a more, uh, how should we say, diffuse or more uh, 
splashy quality to it with the leakage because other players are out in in that same space with him. Right. As a as opposed to having everything so nice and needy and um, sequestered in their own spaces acoustically. So I I think that a lot of the times you you, you are covering your 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 butt uh, to have things in you know that you can reach for in the mix should you need it. Now, if you're you know if you're Al Schmidt and you're used to doing stuff where the live mix is it, then you are really you know trying to make sure you have exactly what you think you need and nothing more and nothing less. Right, of course. I got a quick Al Schmidt story to that end, which was we were doing string overdubs on a Barry White record, I think it was. And if you've ever done strings, because it's a lot of money to have 40 people out there with the meter running. Right. Also, for the whole session, you have the strings too loud, just so you can not only make sure you can police the parts that nobody's playing the wrong note here or there, and also that you know, one of the U67s or one of the expensive microphones has it started, you know, spitting or frying or humming or, you know, some electrical anomaly hasn't crept into the session. Uh, <clears throat> and then you're supposed to make a rough mix after listening with that, you know, totally wrong <laughs> perspective for hours, right? Right. So at the, at the end of this date uh, for... Um, for Barry White, you know, that we had to do a rough mix. So, God bless him. Al pulls the strings down, push the lead vocal way up, and, you know, it takes a few seconds to get it. Okay, roll it. So, you know, rolling the, the quarter-inch tape or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, he gets to about the middle of the song, and it sounds like a million dollars. I mean, it sounds just like a freaking polished record. I mean, you know, mix it we mere mortals would spend eight or 10 hours to get Al got in about 90 seconds. Right. Sure. So we got about halfway through the song <clears throat> and he takes the pan on the lead vocal track and goes whit, whit, hard left, hard right back to the center. And I, I flip out and I go, Al, you want me to stop the tape? Stop, you know, roll, go over this and do another mix. He goes, Oh no. Whenever you're doing a rough mix, you make sure you put a big booger on it. So they, <laughs> so they can't, use it they have to pay you again to do the real mix oh my god and you can imagine that probably happened to him more than a handful of times because his his rough mixes are so great well if he's doing it on purpose and you're and you're sitting there thinking wow this rough sounds like a final then yeah no kidding yeah i mean you 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 know that philosophy came from having been burned a few times right you you don't get that kind of you don't you don't get that kind of wisdom without being fucked over at least yeah a thousand times what's what's that old joke about experience is the ability to recognize when you're making the same mistake a second time <laughs> right right yeah. yeah yeah so but back to your question about how do you, how do you do you choose the right mics well uh, f for the style of music, absolutely you do. As far as let's say if it's a jazz thing, I might use all condensers on on the drums, uh, you know, because crispness and detail is arguably more what it's about than say body and girth and stuff like. For a rock record, I might you know use more. I might lean more on dynamic mics or even ribbon mics for some of the the close mics on the kit mm -hmm. right because again it's 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 more maybe about size and impact than it is about you know being a color and and being the, the time I've enjoyed this conversation very thoroughly. And if you have, there is more. Tune in next week. We're going to have part two with Mr. Pete Dell.
Welcome to Gear Talk. Today I am going to be talking about something that I sort of talked about very early on in the show on the episode with Tree Adams, but I'm going to get into detail on a specific part of that topic here, which is sampling. Now, sampling is something that I haven't done that much of, but recently started doing a little bit more of. One particular example of this is my recent acquisition of an early 70s Rogers holiday kit which I ended up sampling sounds from to use for just about anything I need to. Now, for some people, samples are their whole life in music. For those of you who aren't as fortunate as I am to record live drums or real Rhodes pianos, Hammond organs, acoustic pianos, things like that, sampling is incredibly powerful and incredibly potent. For some other people those in a category like me where we record live drums and real electric pianos and things of that nature. Sampling can also be used to do things like take your Rhodes piano or Hammond organ out on an electronic keyboard without having to actually take the instrument out, or being able to reinforce existing parts with samples of an instrument. I know I just sampled the holiday kit, like I said, and I'm going to be using the tom samples that I took to reinforce the toms on the Moonlight song, which I did not close mic the toms on. Now, how could samples be good for you? Well, like I said earlier, some people don't have the ability to record live drums or real keys, and that's okay. Samples will do you a world of good, especially nowadays with all the wonderful samples and sounds out there. You can get just about anything. Drums, there's so much stuff from Superior Drummer, Get Good Drums, and so much more. And as far as keys, well, look no further than Keyscape. Even amps can be sampled. Well, sort of. Not exactly, but they're called simulations. Sim Amp sims and all that stuff, and cabinet impulse responses. So maybe you want to record your guitar direct, and you use your amp sim to give it a good sound in your headphones, but you have a real amp. Now, let's say you're in an apartment and can't really plug your 2 or 412 Marshall cab into your head. Well, bummer. I know that cabinet probably sounds fantastic, but fear not because you can always take a attenuated output from the head and still use it with a cabinet simulation. Now, there's so much good stuff out there, and I don't know the half of it. So please let me know what you guys like. Send us an email, r2r.bluegirl at gmail.com. I will be looking out for your replies. Also, if anybody is interested in hearing the samples and maybe getting them, I will gauge how much interest there are, and maybe I will put them up for a sale. Let me know. Welcome to Music from Blue Girl. Well, not exactly. This is kind of a placeholder. Tune in next week. I'm going to be having the final Bandmaster demo on the podcast. Also, look out this week. I'm going to try my very best to have the video finished. And if not, I'm going to be trying to release it next week as a companion to part two. This was a follow-up to the Steve Stevens episode, which I spoke of my Bandmaster on. I'm also going to be starting this one as the first episode of a series of Hartman Electronics Pedals demos, and I cannot wait to share it with all of you. So, stay tuned. That's the show, everybody. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking to all of you. Tune in next week. We're going to have Pete Dell back on the show. It's going to be part two, and it's going to be phenomenal. 
As always, there will be more gear to geek out on and more music to share with all of you. But for now, this is Daniel, the D3 Cohen, signing off from Blue Girl Productions Worldwide Headquarters and Studios right here in San Francisco, California. We're ready to record. <laughs>